is hurting already. Uh, and welcome back team. to another episode of No More Conversations. This is Coach Willie Randolph. Right now, we have a hard time just not smiling at each other because this is super <laughs> surreal. We haven't seen each other in how long has it been, Coach? When were you in California jumping over all those things? Jumping on all the things in California. You were in some type of a gym. You were working there. You were doing gymnastics moves and flips and turns. And I remember it was a nice facility. Mm-hmm. It was by the beach somewhere in California. I think you were in L.A. some area, I think it yeah. was. Yeah, so that was um, that was about 2000 and I think it was about 2013 or so. 2013 that sounds about right yeah 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 i think so yeah okay and Mm, yeah i think so years and it's still surreal just seeing you in the flesh (laughs) coach willie randolph the man with the machine (laughs) (laughs) that was you back then sir that was you back then true i was just a little short coach screaming trying to like we gotta win Oh, you was going to instill the fear of God and everybody on that track. You made sure you did that. You did that for sure. There's been back in the day you could do that, but now, shoot, you scream at anybody nowadays, they basically go straight to the AD, and your job is gone within a month if they don't like you. It's different. Really? Very different world. Okay. Okay. Well, we're going to touch on that. We'll talk about that later on. We'll talk about that later on for sure. Yeah. (laughs) So, um, you, sir are now an author, Faith in the Eye of the Storm, Coach Willie Randolph, looking jacked like he's been in the gym eight days a week. If you guys are watching the video, he's got triceps and deltoids and a stern face. (laughs) It's like, this is my coach. This is my coach from back in the day, the one who really instilled that work ethic in Mm -hmm. me just to get the job done at any cost, any means necessary. Thank you, sir. It so, was this um, foundation from what I was given. So I don't even know how to say it. I'm still just smiling hard right now. So I'm just going to go with the flow. I'm just, it's just really humbling. I think people don't realize when you don't see people over a period of years and you spent so much quality time with them during whatever time it was and you appreciated that time you shared with them. Time is something is one of the biggest gifts that you can give to someone. And then when you go back and you review it and then you're in the current time, it's like you didn't even lose that time. It's like you're rekindling that that energy and that time with that family member that you literally just love. You know, it's just it, it's it's unexplainable. It's just like a joy. So that's how I'm feeling right now. I'm trying to calm myself down, but I can't help smiling like it's I'm a, my face is going to start hurting before <laughs> I know it because it's just like. I can't believe it's happening. We're talking and I still see you as my student athlete in my head. Yes. And I'm like, Mike, come in, Coach Randolph. Oh, oh sir, like da, da, da. is that how I sound? Is, is is that was that your no 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 no? I'm not gonna go into how you sound <laughs> at the time because you were very energetic at the time. You're always very respectful. So there was not a similarity between you and Frenchie within certain communication style. That's a different story. Always two great guys, two very different <laughs> individuals, but still my son to that degree, so. Oh yeah, we had a really, a really unique environment and time and just a bond that I don't we think could have, uh, that we could have had under any other circumstances. Thank God we didn't have social media and cell phones to that degree. Yes, yes completely agree. I think that would have taken away from a lot of it. You know? That would have made a huge difference. 
Hate um, is different. So your book here, Faith in the Eye of the Storm. Yes. I read your book. Great read. And there's Thank three you. things that I want to make sure we cover that I read in this book of yours, sir. Okay. Uh, one of those things that I want to talk about was would be uh, professional life for you before collegiate coaching. Mm. Um, the second thing I want to cover is uh, you driving a Cutlass Supreme. Uh, I, I didn't know you had that in you, gangster. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't know you had it in I, you. I, I remember my car had gotten stolen in okay. New Orleans. And I had purchased that one because literally my other one was stolen. So it was, it was, it was a called no car note. And that was called budget and management of my money. And I okay. knew I wasn't going to need a fancy car. Wow. You're right. I forgot about that red Cutlass Supreme. <laughs> I never saw it. It was in your book. It was in your book. Cause I didn't even know I would have had a. I completely forgot about it until you, <laughs> when I tell you Mike, those were my journals. That book okay. came out of journals and me writing during the time frame of Hurricane Katrina and just during the time frame of everything we're going on. Like I had no one to talk to in regards to what I was experiencing as a young African. At that time, I was one of the youngest black coaches in track and field at Division One. And so mm -hmm. my mentors, you know, Mike Holloway, Coach Anderson and some other different people, like I would talk to them, but it was a very different mindset where you knew me as this assertive or whatever version of coach you saw me. And inside I was still a kid, you know, still trying to figure out how much further out of the years of college that I was trying to make this career, not a job. You know what I mean? So within that time frame, you saw a lot of pieces of still someone trying to figure out how to be an adult, but he didn't want this to be a job. He knew he wanted this to be a lifelong purpose. And so you guys saw one thing I saw, I've got to get this done. I need to make an impact. And here's my opportunity to not be a statistic. And here's my opportunity to just focus and zone in and almost had that drive to like, I have to prove to people that I'm not going to be a statistic. I'm not going to be just another black man floating through the world. Um, but for me in that career that I was trying to start, I didn't want it to be seen as an in and out type of a thing. So that's where the work ethic and the foundation of faith and different things from my family all kept me centered. So I didn't get distracted, you know, within the normal things you can get distracted at, at that age, at the time I was 20, 25, 26, when I had just gotten there. So I literally was still, like I said, I was still a baby trying to be a grown man, trying to figure out something that nobody gave me the playbook to do. That's that's really fascinating. These two perspectives that we have of Coach Randolph, your perspective of Coach Randolph and my perspective of Coach Randolph, because my perspective of Coach Randolph was just this well-seasoned, focused and passionate uh, individual who knew exactly what he wanted, exactly what needed to be done. And it's yeah. just fascinating to hear that there was just another, com a, a completely different side of you operating uh, in inside. Yeah, yeah. Really I don't think people realize that there's no perfection within anyone. You know, I don't care how many years you've been a national coach, you've won all these different titles as a basketball coach and different things. You know, I remember talking to Tony Bennett, you know, he's a basketball coach at, at Virginia. 
and we would have Bible studies and, you know, the outside perception of who he was coaching his athletes versus who he was inside his office. And we're talking about God and different things and the things that he was struggling with that I was like, I struggle with the same thing. And other coaches were like, yeah, but no one listens to us. It was, it was, it's those things that we forget as people that were human first, you know, and certain roles put you into almost this category that people forget about your humanistic side and that you are sad sometimes, just like teachers. Remember when you thought your teachers didn't even go to the bathroom or eat lunch or did things of a normal, well, for me, I had such a level, (laughs) for me, I'm a little bit older, you know, I had such a level of respect for my teachers in high school that I didn't see them other than these entities inside the classroom that I had to give all my respect and energy because they spent all their lifetime being able to give this knowledge to me. And even if I didn't like the teacher for whatever reason, I was raised, you must respect them because of the work that they put in for that career. But I didn't see them as human to the way of where we were people, you know what I mean? So when I saw a teacher in a grocery store, it was like, oh, I see a teacher in a grocery store. Let me go to the other side. Like, I'm not supposed to talk to them. They're, they're not supposed to be bothered. You know, they're not supposed to be, you know, buying a beer or drinking chips or whatever. And the same thing for coaches. I think, you know, we were seeing or put in these roles that we don't have issues. We don't have fears. We don't have emotions. We don't have, you know, expectations and standards that supersede our own. You know, and that part of it as a student, I think that you guys are in that world and like I was transitioning to like, you know what, this is the person that's going to lead me to this next phase. And that's who they are. Leave it there. Mm-hmm. It's very different nowadays, though. So, yeah, interesting perspective of what you saw me as, because it's humbling, you know, that that is what I wanted to present. But it really was just me. You know, my passion was leading that perception. So even though you saw it as like, duh, 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 that was my passion of my, my foundation of saying, you must not fail. You must present a level of excellence for other Black men and Black women and people to see that you can be just as good, if not better, than those that came before you, that were a different color, that whatever it is, you must present your best. That's how... I presented myself from the inside out. And that's the words that you say you saw me as. It's it's just different for me to hear it because I I didn't think about it. It was just my passion. Right. That's my foundation. fascinating. That's because I, I I completely get that. You know, I, I was raised in the South, you know, um, and respect is very high in the South, and you have your superiors, and it's yes, sir, no, sir. Um, and, and for, for me, you were one of those teachers for me, you were in the teacher category for me, it was yes, sir, no, sir. And yes, you did have a playful side, but it was much as like, no, coach Randolph is about, he's about work and he is Mm -hmm. about, uh, dedication. Um, Mm -hmm. so, so, and then you're operating when you were our coach, you were operating in this space of still trying to make sure that you're presenting the best thing that you can be. Um, so when do you think that changed for you? When do you think you kind of settled into your role is seeing yourself as um, maybe level in the playing field, so to speak. Um, during the time frame of New Orleans or as in general? In general. Um, honestly, I don't think there's a such thing as leveling the playing field for certain, um, how do I say it the correct way? There will always be, to me, 
a fight to prove to people that you are of value in comparison to others because of the way that our society has almost been created to say there's a have and the have nots. There's the powerful and there's the not so powerful. There was the ones that are trying to get up to where the powerful are at, but you you still got to, you keep getting knocked down because those that are up here can't let you get up there because then you take what they have. So as far as the leveling field, um, I never really worked on, I never really felt like I got there. No, I take that back. I think that I, I finally achieved that in my mind when I became a director of track and field um, at Central Michigan. And I say that because it was my alma mater. It was a place that I was familiar with. They recruited me really hard from University of Louisville. There was this huge welcome. There was this, hey, we're going to give you this. We're going to give you that. You're in charge of 110 athletes. You have five employees that you have to like hire and you got to bring in your level of what you feel is going to build a basically a company, you know, and your employees are, you know, your people that you hire for as your assistants and then your students. So building that, that was probably the first time I felt that I kind of made it, so to speak, at a leveling piece where it was like the respect there because I was also on the NCAA track and field committee. I was on the USATCA um, track and field committee and I got voted in on both of those. So it was just like, I was very blessed to have all of this kind of come together at one time based on my work ethic through the years, you know, and before that I was at Louisville. And so being at Louisville, we won a bunch of Big East championships and I was an assistant coach after New Orleans. And so I, I was seasoned and groomed to seeing what the highest level of conference championships were and what it was to be kind of like you said, at this level playing field of like the highest and the best of the best conferences of the Big 12, the Big East, the SEC. And so I got to smell that. And I got to see that. And I was mentored by a great person, Ron Mann, and worked with some great staff or Mr. Jake Jacoby, a great, one of the best jumps coaches in the world. And, you know, his dad and then Melanie Welty, who all went on to coach at Florida, still there now. Dale Cowper, that is actually the head coach at University of Louisville, that we both came in at the same time. And he was a throws coach. So when I got to Central, I had this, how do you say it? I had this kind of like, all right, I got a foundation here. I, I, I got a little bit of swag of like, I'm making it, you know, I got this, like, here I am, like I belong, you know what I mean? Yeah. But within that phase of feeling like I belong, there was still this fight in the back of my back and my head that you still would never really be at the level where, you deserve to be based on your work ethic, based on other people's um, standards of what they see you as. And I'll explain that as in a sense of, as an African-American male and or female, you can get to the top, but you're always gonna have to fight a little bit differently to me in comparison to certain cultures to stay there, to say you belong there, that you've earned your way to be there and you just didn't get this free pass because you happen to be a color. And so when I got to Central and I came in and thank God for my staff, we immediately like took the same program and just missed winning the championship by like seven points, like on the last jump on the women's side that same year. On the men's side, we made a huge transition. And, and we're talking about they were dead last and went to just almost winning on the last jump. I cried like a baby because they're like, this is the same people. And we just changed their mindset. Men's side, they moved up. And then those three years, it was just this boom, 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 boom. And all I could say was just like, you were on a high, but you knew there was other people that weren't happy with your high. 
and they challenged your high because they didn't feel like you really deserved it or merited earning that. It's like you're almost almost constantly fighting to prove it like, no, I'm just as smart as you. No, I went through the war too. No, I had to go through this level too, but I went through a different level than you and I respect what you did, but don't disrespect what I learned. So I, where I'm at, you know, so it was a lot of different things once I got there and there's a lot of things that happened, you know, went into the last year and it was like every coach that goes through where you, you graduate your classes and you bring in new kids. There's always a transition year, but my transition year was different because you have to be careful within bringing certain people around you. I always talk to my friends about, you know, your energy and the people that you associate with. Everybody's not always in the same level of loyalty and respect as what we were raised or what I was raised. Some people want to be a part of associations or a part of businesses so they can get the bragging rights and then they can come in and they think that they are entitled now is a word that they can just take that away from you because they feel like they already prepared more than you or smarter than you. I had that that came into my company and they did some things in the backgrounds to try and pull my um, credit down to build up their own credit. And so within doing that, you know, the one thing that I was grateful for is that I had a praying mother and she was there and I was able to financially move her from, you know, at that time, Nashville, Tennessee, she was going through some sick things. She was congestive heart failure and kidneys. And so there was the silver lining there that even though I went through some stress there and it ended up being the demise of my career at that point that I felt like I had made it, but it was also a blessing where I was financially able to take care of my mom during her sickest time, you know, in life. I was able to be in the hospital when she almost died and the family split. And I was able to take care of her and be the person that said, no, there will be no pulling of the cord out of this mother. She's the one that instilled faith in us. She's the one that instilled God and hard work and dedication in us. And even if you guys don't see it, she was the one that kept me from falling apart as being this new director of track and field. When people were trying to pull me away from my foundation and try and make themselves who they want to be. So, you know, within just my mom being able to, I was able to financially take care of my mom during that time. It, how do I say it, Mike? I think I arrived at that level. I arrived then when I realized that no matter your color, your experience, your resume, you can get all these championships and all these medals and do all these things for the people that are saying that you're valid and you're good and you're, you belong. But if you're not doing it for the purposeful reason and you're not loving on people for the long term and you're not paying attention to those people that have helped you to get there, the foundation, i.e. my mom, then all those things are just a memory that you can just put in a box and not even remember about, you know, or it won't even be paid attention to within two weeks after the championships. And what to be paid attention to is just the same things that we're doing right now. We're talking about memories and energy that you and we shared during one of the hardest times in our lives. And we didn't look at the hard times as hard times then because we had something that people forgotten about. Unconditional love, respect, drive, dedication, commitment, not allowing, you know, people to tell you you're going to fail and, you know, the media and people saying that you're not good enough or you're not going to make it. All those things we were facing then that I had to face at Central Michigan. But because of when I thought that I arrived, there's pieces of that that kind of got lost in translation because I let other people feed the ego part of me. You know, I need to prove to you I'm one of these 
coaches at LSU. I'm just as good as a coach at, you know, whatever school, you know, and that people get caught into. But then when you lose certain things, you get a stronger perspective of what is important. And what was important for me to learn out of that experience was that life will come and life will go. What you are, I ain't going to cry. How your character and what you are to people and who you are to people and how you love on people is the only thing that's going to last. It's the only thing that people will remember because you made an impact on their lives past the medals. You made an impact on their lives past the championships. You made your life a piece of their life and they won't be able to forget that life if it was genuinely shared within how you were taught to share. And that's the part that I feel that's missing out of today's society and missing even more so out of the coaching world because people are all about me, me, me as opposed to how do we love, love, love and make this a bigger picture of how do I make you a better parent when you do become a parent? How do I make you a better dad? How do I make you a better you know, version of a, a whatever? And that's where I, I feel that I, as you said, started off the question, started to go on so long, but I feel like I made it then, but I made it through that adversity piece of it because I had a switch in my mentality where I no longer saw the value for me to be chasing medals versus chasing making impact and purposeful meanings that allowed me to remember that it's not about my color. It wasn't about my finances. It wasn't about, you know, my school cars and my paychecks and different things. It was about what are you doing to make a, a difference in people's lives while you're here? What are you doing? You know, what, what are you really doing? Because it's easy to get trapped into doing a lot of nothing and being rewarded for that. So you, you said a lot and, and, um, and so much that I want to, that I have questions about it. It's fascinating just to hear even just this glimpse of your story because there's just so much in it. There's so much meat in there. And um, so I'm going to try to remember as much as I can um, about what I want to ask you. So one thing would be, uh, I don't know the level of politics in, in um uh, the administrative side of sports. I, yes. I, I, I know there's a lot. I know there's a lot, but I haven't been ingrained in, into it. So um, are you able to, were you able to make a distinction between like uh, competitive moves um, made by people in the administration versus uh, racially motivated moves? Mm, very good question. Um, at certain points at certain universities, I was not, I think there was a certain part of the naive. I couldn't believe it was going on um, in today's time where there was the racial pieces of it and the political piece of it. And it was mixed in within, I fought to get to where I'm at. You're not going to come in here and tell me that what I fought for is not correct politically or racially. And some people, when they're so set in their ways, older or younger, or been entitled to believe and think in a certain way, they don't like people challenging that thought process or that way of where they're sharing their jobs or their, their money or their energy with you. And so, yes, there is a large amount of how do you say it? there's the racial piece in there? There's, it is, it's not even a question. 
If you look at the number of African-American men coaches in any sport, let alone track and field, there's very few head coaches, but the head coaches that are there, they had to fight and claw to get themselves where they still are fighting now. They still have to fight for the amount of money that they deserve based on their resumes in comparison to their white counterparts or Hispanic, whatever it may be. I, I don't even know if there's any Hispanic head coaches or Oriental or Japanese head coaches in my profession. I know there's a lot of assistant coaches. I know there's a large number of assistant coaches that in a sport of track and field for my, my scene over the years, it's a good number of African-American kids that, and minorities that are literally winning the championships, like in other sports. And so when you have them being led by a Caucasian or whatever versus not an African-American, but you know that you have to have an Amer African-American male or female in there, then you are knowing that you're using um, the connection that we need to feel like we are going in the direction of someone we trust or we feel like they understand us coming from, you know, Brooklyn versus coming from, you know, Oakland, you know, coming from Oakland versus coming from West Bloomfield, Michigan versus coming from Saginaw, Michigan. You know, there's different ways that you're raised, but if you're of that culture, the cultural differences are very obvious within certain people. And those things within our sport, not gonna lie, it still sits there. And the people that are at the top, they don't wanna make those moves the same as they make it for, say for example, name a basketball coach of a African-American descent that was said, they were let go and moving into a different direction or whatever it may be. And it was presented as a positive way versus so-and-so stepped down and we're going in a different direction. The way it is even worded is in such a different way within the political and the racial way that they put things. They almost kind of blackball someone where they can't get another job right away. And another person can go and pick up another job within the next month because of some racial terminology. They're, the way that it's presented in the media, the way that it's stated, you know, when someone has a, a, a change in jobs, it is not always seen as fair. That is something that is always, I am not going to sit up and lie. The racial and the political piece of it, they combine themselves on the highest level still in college athletics. It is. Yeah. Interesting. And if you don't know how to navigate through that, you get sucked up and you get pushed out. You get sucked up or you get caught up or you get pushed out. So let me mm -hmm. ask this, because that's a great challenge. That, that's a great um, way to put it. If you don't know how to navigate that. So let's say if you had to give... Uh, a single piece of advice to minorities entering uh, this the space that you're in, mm -hmm. what would be your advice to navigate that, that space? That's a deep question because I'm no longer coaching college athletics anymore as of two and a half weeks ago. And part of it is because... What? Yes. Um, the politics that we're talking about right now are one that I've come to realize that I know my energy, I know my talents, and I know my worth. And when you know your worth and you get to a point when you're at a certain age, and you're like, you know what? Why am I continuing to sacrifice my life for people that don't respect and appreciate my life the same as they're doing for these people that are just coming in into the business? And you're paying them more, and you're paying me less with more experience. 
And I've been, it's, it's that thing that you, you start to get to a reality of your life and you start to say, why do I have to fight to do, to get what I deserve and what I've shown you I'm deserving. And so there's a lot of things for me that, you know, you, you have to take your value and your joy and you have to hold it because your energy, the people will suck and almost like use you to get, to keep what they're getting the non-revenue versus the revenue. You guys didn't know this, like during the New Orleans timeframe, there was a large amount of fighting that I had to do when they basically said we had to come back from Baton Rouge, New Orleans. And I didn't want to come back to New Orleans. And why is because I knew that those same people that were forcing us to come back to New Orleans, the administrators, they were doing it solely for a reason of keeping their jobs because people weren't returning. And you guys were seen as a money piece of it revenue as far as bodies, but you weren't respected for the commitment and the how we stayed together to represent New Orleans. We had this pride. They didn't have that same pride for you guys. And so I had to do my best to protect you all to 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 hold on to what I sold you guys as far as graduating, we're going to stay as a family. And they weren't doing that. So when they made us come back, because LSU wanted us to stay there for a full year. They said, you stay here. We're going to continue to give you the, the scholarships that you hear. You're going to, you can, we get you in the better dorms. You, you guys are fine. We'll figure out this whole thing at the end of the year. New Orleans was like, no, you have to come back because basically we need you. So when you guys were forced to come back and we stayed, what, still in the hotels, mm-hmm. the Bourbon Street, we still stayed in the, the, all those different things. It was still not even about you guys, but I don't know if you guys knew, you know, of course, the basketball teams were the first ones to get into the dorm rooms. Mm -hmm. The revenue sports were taken care of. I don't know if you guys knew, but the revenue sports were taken care of in Tyler, Texas, where they eventually came to Baton Rouge, where we were at after I got a call from the AD three weeks after the storm. You know, so it was all those things that when we talk about what's fair and the politics and what makes you think about what people really see your worth as. That was the first time that I saw that my worth as my energy and my passion and I was putting out was um, conditional. It was selective. It was convenient for when it was necessary to keep them where they need to be at. And so within just even now, it's the same thing. It's just on a whole nother level now. It's a whole nother level on like, like you're not going to mess up our money. You're not going to tell us that, you know, you may have somebody that's on a coaching staff that's sleeping with the student athletes and you tell us, and we don't have time to deal with this because we're dealing with football and basketball. You're going to have to like, just wait for us to deal with you. But in the meantime, there's student athletes being hurt on your side, the same as they are in basketball, but because you're not a revenue sport and you're not as important, you get pushed to the side. But when you go and do like I was talking, like, Hey, this is not right. You need to change this. You uncover their wrong. You think that they're on your side. They're not on your side. You just basically uncovered them in, in public and they didn't like that or they don't like those things. And so they come at you in different angles with the political stuff and make you feel like you're not doing the right thing. Those things still happen to today. It's even worse because no one wants to say I was wrong and give up their job. Versus saying, I need to get rid of this person because they're getting ready to jeopardize my job. Now, that sheds a light on a lot of things that I wasn't even aware of. So um, after hearing that- I And just, it was my job to keep you from knowing that. Right. And, and, and I was just going to say that. like I really appreciate who you were to us in that time now because we were- 
essentially able to, to operate in obliviousness. Like I didn't, not once in my mind was I ever worried. Like you created an environment for me and I'm sure a lot of my teammates that allowed us not to worry about the details. And, and, and I, I really commend you on that um, because you were always in good spirits. You always presented good energy. You were always the same consistent and steady coach. And to get this insight of everything else that was going on in your world, you know, and even, you know, realizing that you were so young in that role. And then to hear about like you taking uh, some of the team out into safety and then having to go back into the storm to get your family and not knowing if they were okay or not. Like it's, it's actually quite uh, remarkable that you were able to maintain that level of um, steadiness in the, in the midst of, of your team. Honestly, I can't take credit for any of that. I literally have to keep going back to where I was raised. It came from my foundation for my mom. It came from my foundation of my grandmother. Like it was the way I was raised. It was like treat people and take care of people the way you wanted to be treated. You know, like there was no other thoughts in my entire mind or body during that time was to not keep my word and not to like see you all as family. Like it was it wasn't anything, bless you. It wasn't anything that I saw as like abnormal, to be honest with you. But other people, and when you say it to me, I'm like, oh, I guess. But I, I, it's just not my nature to think the way that other people were trained to think about being selfish is what it came down to. You know, the way that the selfish actions of so many individuals before we got to Baton Rouge um, showed me their true color in the face of adversity. That was what I was just blown away. And it's still the same thing today. People will truly show their true colors in the face of adversity or when they are going through adverse things that can cause them to lose everything that they have. And so people are always going to protect their, what they feel like they earn or what they have, you know, and that's the sad part. I mean, if you go into like, how do you end racism and different things that go on in our world, someone's going to have to give up a certain amount of what they feel that they've had entitlement to their entire lives as a certain race in order to help to bring up another race. And if you're not willing to give up some of this that you've had up here greedily for your entire life, even from the kids or grandkids or great, great grandkids, you, it, they're not going to switch that mindset of seeing you just as not as good or not of value. They won't tell you that as much, but the actions speak louder than words. And so those actions of those individuals um, during that time frame for me, it was hurtful. And it, I'll be honest with you, I was depressed for two years after Hurricane Katrina. I didn't even know what depression was. I just knew that I couldn't sleep. I knew that I was having like memories of different things. I, I remember like seeing the helicopters coming in and bringing people into the LSU um, track and field facility in the middle on those cots. I remember like literally like just going in it's the smells you know the people that were on top of the buildings for long periods of time I remember like Nadia talking to her you know on the way to the basketball arena and trying to encourage her and the other people to like for us to stay distracted of what we were thinking was the worst was to go and help other people that were in way worse situations with nothing you know I remembered all those things but I had to put a pause button on it and I didn't even know that that's what I did during that time frame of Hurricane Katrina and adversity, it was like just constantly praying and journaling. I would pray and write, pray and write, 
talk to my mom, pray right, talk to my mom and just pour myself into seeing you guys being okay. And when I could see you guys being okay, I still have vivid memories of seeing you guys sorry, um, inside the church and we would prepare you guys dinner. And I remember the most satisfying thing was seeing you guys coming in together, laughing and smiling and not even thinking about all the stuff that was going on, not even 65 miles away from you. It was, it was, it was part of my air that I would breathe to um, be able to prepare the spaghetti and the different things in that, that, that church and you guys eat it and appreciate it and then laugh and talk and have interactions. Like I can see you, Frenchie and Juan and all those guys sitting at the same table. table. I can see, I can really see uh, Tyronica and Jasmine and, and Naughty and all those girls sitting at the same time. I can see Priscilla and Edie and all those other girls sitting at the same table and like just all everybody just interacting talking to throwers doing their things, you know, just all talking and interacting Chase, there's another name I hadn't heard in a while. Just remembering that we were able to put a pause button on fear and adversity for you guys, but still somewhat trying to teach you guys how to fight through people expecting you to just not be good enough to get through that. And I remember when we went to the conference championship indoors, it was almost like people couldn't believe that you that we were there. And you guys were competing at a level of, who, it was just humbling. It was humbling, you know, just as much as it was humbling to have Coach Hayes from MTSU did still one of my mentors. He's almost 90 some years old almost, but um, he literally was the first one to call, you know, found the number when we had these, you know, the answer machines. He called Eddie Nunez and he found out where I was at and he sent money for you guys to help to feed you guys on those days because the school wasn't giving us any money. That was my money. And that was money that was coming from different people that I knew from across the country, the ASICs, the clothing, the shoes. It was the networking and, and connecting to people that really thought the same way to make a difference for people. And so within where I'm at now, I choose not to be put my energy and my time around people that are literally just taking people's time for their own selfish purposes. I only choose to give out my energy to the needy, not to the greedy. And so I'm working with professional football players, soccer, tennis, all kinds of different levels. And I'm excited about that future and just, yeah. That is, um, that's really heavy coach. Like just to, to get so much insight on what was going on in that, because those were some of the happiest days of my life. You know, it wasn't by no means was that an ideal situation for, you know, a new college student, a new college athlete. But I wouldn't have traded that for anything. Like I met some great people. That was my first uh, probably real exposure to, uh, to international students, mm. um, you know, and we had a very diverse team from Africa and, yeah. and Europe and the islands. And it, and it was great. And, you know, it was, it was just, um, it was nice to, to get that, that amount of diversity on a team, you know, and it was even regardless of the, the variation on our backgrounds, it was, it was still all love. It was where people are just people, you know, just personalities yeah. and people just trying to make it to the next step. So I, I am going to attempt to 
to pull an answer out of you because there are minorities you know, that are still going to want to take the path that you have taken, even in the midst of all of the struggle. So yeah. like, what would you recommend for them to navigate that landscape? I say the first thing is to find an administration that truly believes in you, your vision, and ask the questions. Are their vision, is their vision connecting within your heart and your passion? Because there's a lot of administrative people that can say one thing, and sell their vision. But if it's not connected with your passion and your vision, then literally you're just taking another job. And when you're taking another job, then when you get fully invested into that, it's kind of hard to reverse what you signed up to do versus on what they said their vision is versus what your vision and your purpose and your passion was when you were just in that mode of like, okay, they're going to pay me this. Don't get caught into that. That's the first thing when you're getting recruited or you're pursuing that. Know that you're going to need to have the freedom to be able to bring in the style of people and athletes that you and coaches that are going to be loyal and they're going to be very much so someone that when you're not there or when you go to competitions, they have a similar um, work ethic or breathing air of you or if they're capable of learning that. Now, that's different nowadays because kids are raised very different than the way we, you were raised. Um, so that's going to be something you can't really control. So you're going to have to look at certain levels of countries or places that you can get that. I'm grateful for what you're giving me and work to that level. Because if you don't, you get in the wrong people and the wrong students that are coming from clothing and uniforms and social media bragging rights and all those different things that make them feel valuable because they don't know who they are yet you can run into some very negative things. So you have to be smart with your recruiting, smart with your recruiting of your coaches and make sure that those three things are locked up within being within your purpose and your passion or what you want to achieve. If you can have those things in line, you're going to win championships. You're going to change the, 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 the landscape of where you're coming in because everybody's going to be the same soldier or they're going to be in the same army or want to be able to support financially your army, i.e. the administration, to do what you're trying to do to go to war. And that's what I'm saying that. So, mm. you know, you can do it. You just have to have this wisdom to set it up the right way mm. so you're not set up to fail and basically become a babysitter or someone that just holds the team together just because of the someone needs to do it and everybody's not going to do it for cheap. And some people will do it for cheap. And you'll never be seen as a revenue sport. So you have to get that in your mind. Like, don't go in saying, I demand this. I won that. I demand that. Unless you come in saying, if we win a championship, I get this amount of a bonus. And that's signing your contract. Unless you come in and say, if I graduate this many people and I get this kind of a bonus with the APRs and stuff like that, now that you, they get credit for, but you don't get credit for if you don't ask about it at the beginning then you need to make sure that you're putting all those little things in your contract at the beginning. So it's no question on when you achieve it, it's automatically just going into your check, your, your account. It's not, you got to fight for it. So it's, it's a lot, those little things for me, if I can go back and tighten them up a little bit differently at certain schools versus other in a total, very important. Make sure that you keep your business in your house. You don't have to associate with every sport and every coach and try and like find ways of talking about comparisons of, you know, this is what we do. This is what you do. 
you need to just find one or two coaches that you trust within your new fraternity, which is what colleges are. It's just a great big fraternity the way I see it. You got your president, you got your associate AD, you got your ADs, you got your, every, it just goes on down. And so by the time you get to your level in your fraternity, you got to make sure that that house that you guys are all in at the same place, mansion, whatever you want to say it, that you have your role to do your job and do it well and enjoy it. Because if you don't do that and set it up from the beginning, you're literally in a house and you're literally everybody's functioning in the house and you got the smallest room with no air condition. The bed is, is basically small and you know that they keep telling you they're going to give you a different bed. The bathroom floors is the floors, tile is all messed up. The shower is leaking. Just think of that as far as if you're in a house with all these people in a fraternity and you get the worst room because you didn't negotiate for the best room over a period of time or right when you came in. Your family members, when they come and visit you, which are your athletes, are not going to be happy to come and visit you. Mm-hmm. They're going to be there because they have no choice. Mm-hmm. They ain't going to be happy to be there. Mm-hmm. And they're going to do anything and everything they can do to get out and say, I got to leave here. But why is basketball in, in room number 50? They have filet mignon. They actually have all the wine. They have all the, they eating all the bread. And no one's telling them they can't eat all of our stuff out the refrigerator. And coach, you can't do nothing about it to stop. No, I can't do nothing about it because the president over there, he's the one that said they can have it. So think about that comparison on how it's not fair, but you all have to stay in the same house because the president is paying for the for the actual mortgage. Now, that is the information that you gave right there. Seems to me like that needs to be mandatory teaching for students that are <laughs> studying to go into that role because those are things that they don't teach in, in, in school. Those are things, because I at one point I thought I might entertain a career in, in, uh, in sports administration. I have a master's in sport and fitness administration. And everything that you just summed up in those last five minutes is like or not more valuable than two years of education that, well, that, that I, I went for that. Because that's applicable, not, not even just to that industry. That's applicable to all industries. Just, yeah. just really giving students and young entry level professionals the information that they need to navigate that land space like this could be this is the worst case scenario this is your best mm-hmm. case scenario these mm-hmm. are things that you can talk about these are the salary ranges that you should negotiate mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. the power dynamics that exist mm-hmm. so that that is something that is never talked about wow. in, to my really? knowledge in any level of of uh in any level of courses about how to navigate that landscape, how to negotiate for yourself, things to look out for. That seems to be like it needs to be a mandatory course for every college student, regardless of what field they're going in. Cause it sounds, I mean, what you've described is applicable in every, in, in every industry. So it's huge. Wow. It's huge. Like that, that, that was absolute gold. What you just gave right there. I would love if you would just go out and teach a class now on that, you know, you know, just to, to, I I literally, that's just coming out of like where you asked me, like, I wouldn't think about giving you anything other than the truth and earnest, you know, and sometimes people don't want to share the truth because they're afraid of what other people are going to think and what's going to mess up their level of the courses that they're teaching versus the real life courses that people really need to hear. And again, it goes back to my foundation and the way that I was taught, you know, the, the real life things to prepare you for the real world, you know, and again, you know, everybody is not capable of receiving the real 
Mm-hmm. People are not being sold the real anymore. They're right. being sold fake and like everything's good and everything's, you know, no, it's not. I mean, being able to be at the different schools that I've been in over the years of oh, shoot, 27 years of college coaching, like it, it, the school that I was at, they couldn't tell me anything different of what I had already known and what I had already seen. And they knew that. They knew that when it came down to trying to get me to agree with certain things and say certain things, they knew that this experience was not going to change. They weren't going to be able to manipulate and maneuver around my thought process. So when people can't do that, they figure out a way to move you in their political way. And then you're like, okay, I've already known this game is coming, but it's okay. I don't need to be associated with you in this house anyways. So this is how we're going to do this. So these are the things that a lot of people don't and coaches don't understand. And they literally lose their identity of who they are because they get stuck in this house of lies and manipulation for so long. You start to lose your concept of what's really real and what's genuine and what's important. And then you get out of the house and you see a whole new block of like, wow, this is how it's really supposed to work at really good corporations. Well, they kept you locked in the house and you never got out the house. You only saw what they wanted you to see. When you step out of that house, it's up to you to now still deal with adversity in life. And that's where having good people around you that are really genuine friends versus associates are going to be able to pick you up and remind you who you were before you get in that house and what you are and what you learned when you're in that house to not repeat that and to help someone else once you get out of the house and grow and be bigger and better. And a lot of people can't do that nowadays in a lot of a lot of situations, no matter what job it is, because it's a job versus a passion. And it's it's a very different world. And people repeat it over and over and over again as they get older. And before you know it, they're in the 60s, 70s and 80s being told, OK, now you retire and now you can live a happy life. Hmm? You're telling me I can retire in my 60s, 6 or whatever it is, and 70s, and I put all this energy in. My life is stressed. I can barely move my back and my energy and everything is off. And now you're telling me to go and live a happy life. But why couldn't I live a happy life if I managed it right when I was younger and when I was growing up with my family and doing things? People are so used to certain structures that when you break outside the norm, people are afraid of being said, they're being told, you're not following the pattern. You're not following this. I'll be honest with you, COVID is something that's real. Was it real for my body and the things that I did to take care of me? What was good for my body was completely different for other people's body. 124 negative COVID tests later, I wasn't waiting for something like that to dictate me taking care of my body ever. As you already know, I've always been someone that tried to exercise, try and run against you guys and still get blasted and try to eat well and sleep well and stuff like that. You know, so I was always paying attention to my body and attention to my health mentally and physically. So when things fell apart for the whole world, it was just like, okay, well, I'm kind of already like eating healthy, but no one's saying to eat healthy. I'm already on top of my vitamins. I'm already top of my zinc. I'm already top on eating less meat and more vegetables. I'm already top on, on top of sweating and staying out in the sun. I'm already on top of like making sure my immune system is already strong on a daily basis. So 
how much of a difference would COVID affect me if I did got it? If I was taking my car and getting regular tune-ups and getting the engine and oil change and putting in the right gas and putting and doing the right mileage on my body, my body should been able should be able to break off that fight that God created our bodies to fight many viruses for eons if I was taking care of my temple and my car. But that's the thing that I learned that society and the world doesn't want to tell you the truth, the real on how to take care of your body, because there's plans and, and cycles of what works best to keep things with the rich doing what they need to do. And only certain people know how things work and what really is from this mass, that mass, this, that, and then they toy, make all the different information so confusing that most people that have the need explanation of what is real they don't have the capacity to break down what is truth. And so they just follow. I was never raised to be a follower. I was always raised to question things and figure out what's best for me. And so I'm going to a whole nother topic now. No, but I'm glad you did because you're absolutely right. I, I think, you know, COVID is definitely, it's a deadly disease that, that, that's yes. going around the globe right now. Mm -hmm. But I think the fact that, these um like the world health organization and all of yeah. these other institutional um people that are telling us how we should be handling this virus or eat more vitamin d or you know get more vitamin d get outside exercise eat health the, the fact that they're remember not saying in the house don't go outside eat a whole bunch of sugary food and everything else right. for months before that Right. The fact that no one's saying, well, stop, you know, drinking soda, stop eating fast food. You know, the fact that it's okay that Krispy Kreme is giving free donuts to everybody who gets their vaccine. It's yeah. like the, the fact that that is acceptable should be the moment that we realize we need to stop listening so much to them and maybe put a little yeah. more effort into what we can control because that's probably going to yeah. be more. You would, so, so you're thinking logic. Mm -hmm. is what most people have been taught to not think anymore. Mm -hmm. Thinking logical for what works best for them versus following the order of what's being written to the T that you no longer think as an individual. Yeah. And you're not being able to think as an individual and make your decisions based on your body and your health and things previous to COVID, then you're easily manipulated or controlled because fear has been something that's been here since time began. Mm. Fear will not leave. Fear is something that people have used since the beginning of time to get people to do things they want to do and they don't want to do. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about the CDCs and everybody else and the different levels of how the ADs and different people motivate you or try and get you to control you to do what they want you to do, fear is still a consistent thing. And if you are confident and believing that you know that you're going to be okay and you know that the information or you're finding information that you're confident in that works for you, then you're not easily manipulated. But people don't look at that. Fear is the biggest virus there is, in my opinion. Oh, that's heavy. I hear you, Willie Randolph. Fear is the biggest virus. Wow, that's profound. It makes people do things across the globe, no matter what color you are, no matter how rich you are, no matter how poor you are, no matter your color. Fear will make people do things 
and say things that you would never believe. That is uh, profound. I'm going to marinate on that. Fear is the biggest virus out there. And, and, and to, to piggyback on that idea. That just came out of nowhere. It so. came out of nowhere, boy. I, I, I need to make a note on my own. Make man. a note. <laughs> Write was, that down. Write that down, Coach. <laughs> that's a good one right there that came out of the inside right there <laughs> that came from deep it came, came from, from deep, deep. <laughs> I'm on that note on that note throughout our conversation you've talked about the, this foundation that you were brought up with and um this this faith that you have so i'd, I'd like to ask you about that tell me hmm. what faith means to you well just put it in there uh, since we just said fear, faith and fear can't coexist together. And I knew back then and even more so now that the way that faith was, I always wrote the scripture and heard my mom always saying, faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. I don't see a lot of things, but if I believe in my heart strong enough that it can happen and it will happen, and I believe it, but then my connection with God and, and within my connection within myself there's no need for me to, I'm a normal human. I'm going to fear certain things, but if I believe it strong enough, man, it's a whole nother feeling when you actually see it happen. Like I, as your coach, that was part of my biggest job to believe what you guys didn't see yet. And what I was hearing, you said you wanted, but I had to go in a place weeks and months ahead with the writing workouts and seeing what you were doing and communicating with you mentally and physically getting you ready. So when you went to battle, that fear that you would have like everybody else, I had to teach you how to deal with it with faith and believing in yourself and believing in the process and practice. So that faith that we're talking about was the same faith that I got from my mom that I literally report into you guys and then mix it in with what you knew. And then when I took you guys together, it was the best feeling to see y'all come together and put all that faith that you believed in each other together as one big weapon to go against anybody that you went against with no fear whatsoever. And even if you did have fear, I remember certain people that were more believing of you that you were in yourself would give you that extra little pour of faith that you needed just to get out of that fear for a second to go out there and do things that you still worked to try and believe yourself. But because you were a family and you were a unit, we worked it collectively together. So that faith and that fear, that was how we made it. That was the same thing. That was the same faith, family, and resiliency. We That was my formula, faith, family, resiliency. We were not quitting. We were not going to give up. We were, failure was not an option. We were not going to be a statistic. We were not going to allow people to say that we weren't good enough to still be able to compete at the best of the best levels because of a hurricane. That's how I thought about it. Even though it was realistic, I couldn't give you guys that as a fear. So I couldn't fear, even though I would go home in my, my house that I stayed in with two of my assistant coaches, which I think you guys knew that Glenn and coach Neil, we all stayed in the same house by coach Atlas, his mom giving us that house to rent with no pay. We stayed together. So when I would go in my room to myself and journal, I would write out all my fears in that journal so I could build it with faith on what I would be doing the next day with you guys. And still the same thing now. It's, mm. it's a connection that literally I think it separates average 
people to great people, whatever their connection within their faith. I can't say it's a certain religion. I just know it's a belief. So, because when we were going through Hurricane Katrina, you say you were 26, 27? Yes. 26 or 27 years old and you're you're shepherding this this young team of people literally through the storm and you know i you know and hearing your story here tonight and then reading reading in the book here um it just seems like a tremendous amount of stress it was and you you said that you know you were depressed for two years after that so so how how did you deal with it like that that seems like a tremendous amount because it wasn't only the stress of shepherding the team through the storm but also you know just knowing that you're the youngest of all your siblings and still being leaned upon to you know uh you know go back into the eye of the storm when your sister's plans fell through not knowing if they were going to be okay or not and then just just there's just so many variables that you had to consider as a 26 or 27 year old you know i've been through stressful moments but usually it's just me that i'm worried about this <laughs> it was just me it wasn't 30 40 50 people at 26 or 27 years old so like what did that do to you how did you get as a, like how did you get through that aside from just like faith like specifically um literally it was love like i literally just loved you guys you know, I love, I loved you all like you were my family. Like I, I didn't know any other way to fight, to stand up, to wake up when I was exhausted, to fight when I got staph infection in my foot. I think you remember that. I don't even know if you guys remember that. I got I don't. staph infection. I, don't. I got a staph infection in my foot in Baton Rouge, but I did it out of what I was raised to do. I knew no other way. Love. It was, I, I'm not even making it up. It's just, there's no miracle answer. It's just you do things out of love for people. And if you do it genuinely the way that it was taught to you, you can put a pause button on your stress. You can put a pause button on your not having enough to eat or not sleeping enough. I guess I would attribute it to as far as being a parent. I've never been a parent of my own child, but I assume that many parents sacrifice. Well, I remember seeing my mom sacrifice for us as a divorced mom of us, you know, of four kids and two of them. Well, my brother was my cousin and she adopted. So he was my brother. He was really my cousin. I only knew him as my brother and my two sisters. They're my sisters, but my sister closest to myself. She was the only one that was born by my actual dad. And my other sister was like before my mom got married. So, you know, I saw us go through all the things we did. And she still pushed and sacrificed with love. So when my when that light left this earth five and a half years ago, and this book came out as approved or not approved on the same day of her passing anniversary while I was at a track meet at North Florida, it was one of those surreal moments of like, okay, I'm getting ready to share one of the hardest parts of my life with some and other people and with the love that someone that I miss the most with unconditional love that taught me how to love these same people that I couldn't have done any other way. I remember at one point, my own mom was like, are you gonna come home? 
But she knew when I said, mom, I can't because I can't leave these kids behind. She didn't argue. She didn't question. She didn't do anything other than said, okay, son. You know, and there's pieces there. I didn't even add in the whole book. But when I knew that she genuinely knew that I was going to do the right thing because of love, that was enough juice for me to keep pushing to work hard for you guys. And I remember at the last meet when you guys, it was at Lafayette, ULL, I think it was. And I remember, you know, just seeing you guys in the stands from a distance. And it was close to the four by four in the end. And I remember feeling this great big relief of like, I think it's almost over. They're all getting ready to go different schools. And it was happiness. It was sadness. It was every emotion possible. And the biggest one that I had to keep myself from, um, from thinking was like, it's not fair. I had to keep myself from thinking it's not fair that I won't be able to see them grow to the next levels of their college careers and share that with them. And I told myself, you have to be happy for them because we got to this point where they have their opportunity that you promised them to get to other schools. And they're enjoying this opportunity to deal with different cultures and people and not even think about what they just went through. Hex, we practiced in doggone Tag Gormley Stadium and we remember seeing it on TV with a whole bunch of water around it. And we were able to still focus and not even think about the stuff that we were running around. It was probably in that ground still. You know what I mean? Like we didn't think about no viruses or no diseases or anything like that. We just thought about what we were focused on and that's love. And that's how we got through it. And this trust amount of it. Yeah, I, I learned what depression was after it. But I thank God that he kept me, that I didn't look like what I went through, that I didn't internally take on what I put out for the betterment of him to understand that this was about everyone, about love. And that's the part that bothers me the most about the world today. It bothers me tremendously. And that's what bothers me about college athletics right now is that it's such a selfish, self-driven area that now you can't even see the difference of people working for the purpose of people, of making a difference. You see all about accolades and medals and things that are man-made that can be gone right now and right then and right there can be gone. But to hear someone like yourself and see you as a grown man, it's, it's humbling. It's really um, humbling to see you're making it. You're being the best you you can be. You, you remember those memories in a way that I used to be afraid that I didn't want you guys to feel what I felt at that time. And I'm happy to be able to just talk to you about that time without thinking of the negative, but thinking of the positives where many years I couldn't do that. Many years I couldn't look at that. Many years I didn't want to see that in my head. But now that adversity and the time that we went through that time, it's made me stronger. It's made me wiser. It's made me more protective of my energy. It's made me more protective of the people that I care about. And it's made me more vocal to people to speak the truth and not hold back any of the truth because of worry and fear of what other people may say and what they may think of me. I could care less about what people say and or think about me if I'm doing the right thing. I'm doing the purposeful thing and I'm doing the loving thing. If I'm doing anything outside of that, then yeah, I fear what people will say and or do to me, but not anymore. 
And that started within that time frame that my life changed. And when it changed again, when my mom passed and when my life changed on what my role became within my family and my when my grandmother passed in 96, just this past Thanksgiving before Thanksgiving, that role changed again. But because of what I went through with you all, adversity is no longer anything that I fear. It's an opportunity for me to grow. It's an opportunity for us to say, what are you really made of? What really makes you you? Is it someone telling you who you are? Is it social media telling you who you are? Is it the news telling you what you should be? Is it the past of other people's hurt telling you where you should be and what you should be? Or is it really you looking at the mirror and saying, what am I going to do within my time while I'm here to be the biggest and the baddest Willie Randolph or Mike within the time frame I'm given to live? What are you going to do to face adversity? That's all I wanted to share within just that part within the book. And I couldn't have made it. And I couldn't have been anything that you're seeing right now without you all at least saying that you trusted me. When you guys showed that you trusted me, man, that was enough for me to run down anybody and run through any brick wall. That's what gave me energy every morning. Seeing you guys all becoming a family and knowing that you guys trusted me and your families can worry. So hearing you say that, it's mission accomplished within just hearing that, what, 20 something? How many years has it been? All these years later, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I and I do want to reiterate, I just want to thank you for, for being who you were during that time, being who you are, because reflecting on it, you've always been that energy of love, you know? Um, and, and it's nice to hear you explain what that means to you, because again, there's there's no possible way if we if you were able to quantify things that we would... Uh, be able to reciprocate what you've done for us, especially hearing what went on behind the scenes and what you were shouldering, you know, and I feel very fortunate to have you in my life, very fortunate to have a lot of people in my family like you who have been shouldering burdens that are probably unbeknownst to me um, to, to, allow, to allow myself and, you know, other people um, in my circle to have a certain level of freedom and flexibility uh, to just kind of kind of continue and um, yeah, so, so thank you for that. Um, I know it's getting late where you're at, uh, Coach. Uh, I really want to thank you for I joining. I see my eyes are getting lower and lower. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. So I won't keep you. Just hang on one second. But that no is problem. the end for the podcast. So thank you for joining, Coach. Just hang on one sec. No problem.